State Representative Cody Smith is the chairman of the powerful House Budget Committee, and that means the Carthage Republican has a big say over how the state of Missouri spends its money. Smith joins St. Louis Public Radio's Julio Donahue on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about the state of the Missouri budget and what's next to overhaul the state's criminal justice system. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm sitting here with Representative Cody Smith. And where are we, Representative Smith? We are in my op- my office in the state capitol on the third floor. Uh, the chairman of the budget committee. Uh, that's been the office of the of the chairman for some time. And I recently took over this office late last year. So I'm I'm a a newcomer to the office, rel- relatively speaking. Uh, but that's uh, where we find ourselves today. Yeah, you have a very good view. Yeah, a nice view of the river and kind of looking out on the west side of the building. And uh, just recently, this window, these windows were uncovered. It, they were shrouded in plastic. Uh, last year, came into the office, like I said, re, you know, about this time last year is the first year I was uh, the chairman of the budget committee and had a beautiful view for a week. And then the second week I came in and it had the plastic covering oh, no. <laughs> from the, the construction outside of the building. Uh, on the exterior, and then uh, only recently has that been taken away. So my my beautiful view was taken away from me in short order, uh, so I'm glad to have it back. So as you mentioned, you are the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, which handles the budget. Essentially, you're like the budget-writing czar of the uh, General Assembly. Um, and you're relatively new to this job, right? I am. This will be my second year in the role. Uh, and my fourth year in the legislature. So I'm still, uh, you know, after this year, I'll be halfway through my eligible terms. And so if I'm reelected, could serve four more years, uh, but still relatively new to the legislature in the context of the chairman of the budget committee. Okay. And that's primarily what we're going to be talking about is the state finances. But um, before that, let's get into some of your background. So can you tell us where your district is and approximately the boundaries of it? Sure. I My district is the 163rd district. There are 163 legislative districts. I uh, like to cheesily say that we save the be- they save the best for last. Uh, so it's 163. Uh, it's all located inside of Jasper County, which is in southwest Missouri, uh, far southwest Missouri. I live in Carthage, uh, which is uh, close to Joplin, Missouri, which most people have heard of. And my district includes the communities of Carthage, Webb City, and Carl Junction, points in between, and uh, represents, you know, I say geographically, probably represents about a 25% of the county or a third of the county as far as the size of the district. And how did you get involved in politics? So I had always been interested in public service and had, had kind of a, a, a broader interest in politics, probably more from a philosophical level, uh, until 
I was recruited by some folks from the local central committee. My predecessor, Tom Flanagan, was who happened to be the budget chairman, by the way, was term limited, and it was what we what we call an open seat at the time. And uh, had some folks from the, the local central committee approach me and recruit, uh, ask ask if I would consider to run, and, and of course I was flattered, but didn't think that I could really fit it into my life at this time, uh, having a, a family. But they were persistent, and uh, my interest had grown in recent years, having had a my wife and I had a had a had a child, had a son. And then I started a small business of my own, and that kind of heightens your awareness of your interaction with all things government. And so my interest grew around the same time that I was being asked to come and, and try to serve. And so ultimately, my wife and I decided that this could this could be the right opportunity. These seats only come open, generally speaking, every eight years. And who knows where we'll be in eight years after the, you know, at that time. And so I threw my name in the hat and won a three-way primary and, uh, and in my neck of the woods, a very strong Republican uh, part, of the, part of the state, that is kind of the name of the game. So I actually didn't have a, an opponent in the general election that year, so I was, I was duly elected, uh, unopposed in the general election. Well, let's get into talking about the state finances. So in the last couple days, one of the main things that's come up is this um, disagreement or discrepancy between Governor Parson and the General Assembly in terms of revenue estimates. I want you to explain why the revenue estimate is important, why people should care about what the revenue estimate is initially before we get into what the disagreement might be. Sure. So the consensus revenue is the re- consensus revenue estimate is something that very few people are aware of and even few people fewer people really understand. And that is when the House, the Senate, and the governor's office get together and try to agree to a number uh, that will represent the amount of growth for the next fiscal year of the budget. And so in this case, we were talking about uh, fiscal year 21 that we're getting ready to work on the budget for. And the, the conversation was, how much is how much are state revenues going to grow for that fiscal year? And I kind of think of it as determining the size of the pie that you bake and later cut up into pieces for your appropriations. So, So if we can agree on how much growth we think that would be, then we can all agree that the budget is going to be X number of dollars, and then then we have that part of it settled, and then we can move on to our other, uh, you know, move on to the process of actually carving out appropriations uh, from that budget, and, and that's what the consensus revenue estimate is. Right. It essentially sets the number for what you all can spend, It, it right? It determines how much money there's available to spend. That's exactly right. And if we agree on what that number is, then then we all agree to spend the same amount. Presumably, you all have staff that help you come up with these numbers. I, I hope that a lawmaker, no matter how smart you are, is not just picking this type of number out of the sky and saying, this is how much money I think we have, right? That's absolutely right. Uh, we have staff that we rely on for this. Uh, in the House Appropriations Office, we have an economist on staff, and we uh, look to each each respective institution, whether it's the House or the Senate or the Governor's Office, each have their own staff that that help us with our economic forecasting. And by and large, they make recommendations, and the elected side, you know, usually take those recommendations. I certainly am no economist myself, so I, I'm, I'm not in the business of uh, 
economic forecasting. And uh, so we, we do rely very heavily on staff when it comes to the number. So when it's been reported that there's a disagreement, does this mean the governor, the Senate, and the House all have different numbers that they they are working with in terms of what they think the revenue projection is? Well, it means that um, there are, that, that essentially, yes, there's not a, an agreement about what that number should be. So is there a disagreement between all three parties, the House, the Senate, and the governor, or are two of those parties in in agreement and one party's, you know, still has a discrepancy in their estimate with them. I think it's safe to say that there's no there's no consensus, and and there are three parties that that weigh in on this matter. Um, where we started and where we are now is is kind of a different place. But the thing that's important now is that I think the governor has a direction that he'd like to go. He'll be releasing his recommendations next week. And then the House will start on the budget process in earnest. And what's important to me is that we, and and the House, is that we are careful as we navigate through the budget writing process for FY21. Um, And that's because of uncertainty around what revenue might do. And that revenue uncertainty is largely due in part, oh, I'm sorry, largely due to two things. Uh, that is the withholding, uh, the, the questions around with, uh, with, with revenue with, around withholding. You'll recall last year that, that there were uncertain times around withholding. Uh, revenues were down by and large for the last half of the fiscal year and then kind of shot up at the very end to, to essentially uh, bring in most of the revenue that we were expecting. And then, uh, so so we're in our second year of the new normal when it comes to our, our withholding tables, and and we're not exactly sure what revenue will look like as a result of that. Secondly, the economy obviously is is the big question. Um, by by all accounts, we're probably overdue for some sort of recession. We've had a, a long uh, long run of ep- economic growth, and so we know that probably at some point the economy is going to slow down. It's a matter of when and not a matter of if. And so I think it's very important that we be very careful as we proceed to go into the uh, budget writing process for FY21. So is it safe to say some people think that the state is going to bring in more money and some people think the state is going to bring in less money? It's safe to say that some people feel stronger about the the outlook than others. Uh, And and it should be said that... And can you not say who feels more strongly? <laughs> no, I, I am happy to talk about that. I, I think it's it's important to know that if to err on the side of caution is never a bad idea in my mind. So I think there are a range of outcomes that could happen here. It, it could... The, there's consensus revenue estimate is more of an art than a science. It's uh, you're guessing at what we may know uh, or what we would like to know uh, very much. And to give you an example, for the last fiscal year, uh, the consensus revenue estimate was 1.7%. It ended up being 1%. So we were off the mark by quite a bit in terms of, uh, uh, of dollars. And so I understand, and, and everyone in this, involved in this conversation understands, that, that we are trying to make our best guess. And if one party is right or wrong, it, it won't be surprising uh, this time next year. So, so my opinion is that it's best to be careful to, to proceed with caution, and, and that's, I, I, without speaking for the Senate or the governor's office, that's, that's my inclination. 
So it sounds like you're saying you would rather have a more conservative projection, which is a usually a lower projection, than maybe some other parties involved. That's right. Yeah, okay. it's safe to say. And I think it is important to say, you know, revenue projections, in my experience, they never come in right on the mark. You're either over or under, and, and sometimes you want to mitigate how much over or under you might be. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so why don't we move on and talk about what the House's priorities are for the budget this year? Can you kind of outline what you are focusing on? Well, for me personally, Julie, the the role of the bu- the budget should reflect the role of government, and it's in really a prioritization of your uh, responsibilities as a state. And for me, those are public safety. Uh, transportation, infrastructure, and public education. And so I'll be looking for ways to prioritize those things, and I think that's in lockstep with uh, both the Senate and the governor's office. Um, And then we have other things that would come, in my mind, downstream of that. So the overarching uh, mission for the General Assembly, in my mind, as we write the budget this, this year, is again to be to proceed with caution uh, to understand that that we're in uncertain times revenue wise and then we have some the potential for some what I would consider budget busting items to come somewhere in the next few years come down the road and uh, so the less we are spending now the less we might have to cut potentially down the road and nobody wants to discontinue services or um, have to have to make cuts from appropriations that we we've put in place years prior. And so uh, rather than, you know, we, we have X, Y, or Z that we'd like to accomplish in spending, I think I think for me it's a more of an overarching strategy of trying to be very careful as we proceed through the fiscal year. Can you go into more detail about what some of those pressures might be on the budget in the out years? Absolutely. Uh, we have a few things that are that would, would adversely affect revenue that are potentially on the horizon. Uh, first of all, um, as we've talked about a lot, and I know that you've talked about a lot, the potential for Medicaid expansion in the state, uh, we expect that that very well may be on the ballot in November, uh, could cost the state, as it's thought, as much as $200 million in general revenue to pull down the federal funds that would allow for that expansion. Um, and even though it is a 90 10 ma- match for that expansion as proposed, uh, we, we have to match those federal dollars with general revenue dollars. And $200 million is a lot of money as it relates to, to general revenue. Uh, and and there, are some, there are those that say that it could cost the state more. Now, to be fair, there are those that say that it will save the state money. I'm skeptical of that. It's, uh, you know, as the old saying goes, you... Uh, kind of get what you pay for and if you expand healthcare across your pop you know your population I think it's likely to cost more money um, so so there's that there are some other things uh, what we call developmental disability rate stabilize, stabilization uh, we, we I do think the state will be facing some fair, fed, federally mandated increases in our reimbursement rates for our disability uh, service providers across the state. Yeah, so that's a little complicated. I just want to make sure people understand, and I understand, frankly. What you're talking about is Missouri, the federal government telling Missouri that they have to pay the people who uh, work with people with disabilities more. That's right. 
Yeah. So, so Missouri has kind of a, a patchwork quilt uh, array of reimbursement rates for those disability service, d- developmentally disabled service providers across the state. And, and it's, they were established chronologically. So the, the providers that came online before some of the more recent providers have a lower rate than, say, you know, if, if I started a, a company and, and did it 20 years ago and you start one today, you're going to have a much higher rate than I do. So CMS has... Which seems a little unfair. It is unfair. Yeah, absolutely. And, and not uncommon in... And state government, it's been my experience that these things happen chronologically more often than uh, fairly or or balance, in a balanced way. Um, so so CMS has told the state that hey, listen, this is this is not right. You've got to get your rates stabilized. And stabilization in this context is another way of saying you have to raise your rates to bring everybody up to the same level. Obviously, that comes at a tremendous expense to the state, uh, and it has about a hundred million dollar price tag as well. So so over the next couple years, I think it's three or four years, we are going to need to appropriate about $100 million more to, to stabilize those rates. And that's just, again, one of the things that I'm concerned about. There are some other issues, uh, ongoing litigation uh, involving the state. Uh, one is, a, one is a, a, an ongoing lawsuit that I, I probably expect to result in about a $100 million settlement. Uh, hopefully, we'll have some time to pay that off as well. Uh, then there's that involves the Department of Corrections. Correct. Yeah, okay. that that that's correct. And I think we need to be prepared to to uh, pay a settlement uh, in some way on that. And and I don't know. I've been told that that could be in about you know the in the amount of about a hundred million dollars. Uh, then, then there's some ongoing litigation at the federal level about around the tobacco master settlement, and uh, that's something you you've probably heard of before. But essentially, the state has received revenue uh, from the tobacco master settlement agreement for a number of years, and in its way, government becomes dependent upon various streams of revenue. And if you take those away, then then you have to make cuts in the budget, um, and and some of that money is potentially at stake in the future. So. Uh, all of those things combined with some tax cuts that are already baked into the cake. Um, you're probably aware of some triggered tax cuts that, that we have in Missouri. We're on the precipice of another uh, large tax cut uh, that's tied to revenue growth. That happens automatically. It does. Yeah, that's that's from prior legislation that is already in place and, and will trigger those tax cuts. Um, you know, there, there are several things, all this to say, there are several things that could lead to a very troubling, when, if combined with an economic downturn or some, some anomalous revenue uh, withholding pattern that we're really unaware of or don't fully understand yet, uh, could lead to very difficult times in the state budget. And so, again, bringing that all back to where we are today, I think it's very careful that we proceed with caution as we go into the appropriation process for FY21. So I'm going to pick on one of those things, which is Medicaid expansion. Now, I know from talking to you that you would prefer if Medicaid expansion does not pass through an initiative petition. But unfortunately for you and other people in Republican leadership, it it may pass. Is there anything you all can do to mitigate the impact of what that might be? Or, or Or is there anything being discussed to mitigate the impact of that? Or are you all just hoping it it fails to pass. 
I think, first of all, let me try to unpack that uh, from the beginning. And as you and I have discussed prior to this, I don't think that the ballot box is the right place to establish complicated, complex pieces of legislation or statute uh, where you where you necessarily want to be crafting law at the ballot box. That's why Missourians elect and send people, the General Assembly, to Jefferson City to spend months at a time to take their time to thoroughly vet issues, think about them, debate them, uh, change them, uh, kind of filter out good and bad, you know, filter out bad things, try to arrive at a good end product and create complicated public policy. As someone who's coming from another state, it is odd that, and I suspect if you're the budget chair, this even even makes it odder, like when you're going into a ballot box and saying, do you want Medicaid expansion or not, you're not weighing that against the other things that could be funded, right? So you're not saying, do you want Medicaid expansion or do you want to pay the people who provide services for people with disabilities more? Or do you want to fund higher education more? Or, right, it's like a yes or no kind of in a vacuum, which is, I suspect, what is kind of frustrating. That's exactly right. Uh, You know, in in Missouri, we do have the balanced budget rule. Thank goodness for that. If we take some money away from one part of the budget, we have to place it somewhere else or vice versa, I guess you'd say. If we take more, if we appropriate more dollars in one place, we have to take it from somewhere else, especially in the absence of revenue growth. And so uh, you hit the nail on the head. In a vacuum, it's, it's, do you want Medicaid to be expanded to certain population? Well, that can seem like a good idea, if not for all of the other considerations on how it may impact. Uh, in my, you know, again, having a budget-centric view of state government, how it may impact the go- uh, the budget. Can it impact adversely higher education or K through 12 education? Those are the other biggest pots of general revenue. And if if worse comes to worse, we have a mandatory uh, social service program like Medicaid and we have to find that money somewhere, uh, we would be forced to look in other places. And so that, people don't really consider that, they don't really, they're not really able to uh, when they go to the ballot box and cast their vote. So again, I think those matters should be left to uh, the legislature. And, uh, and so that's my first concern with Medicaid expansion of the ballot box. The second one, um, from, a, from a budgetary perspective, uh, if, if, if it does go to the ballot and the people approve it. Um, And and again, we find ourselves in that scenario that I described where revenue is down, we have all these additional expenses. Um, It it becomes a very difficult situation as far as where do we find that money. Historically speaking, places like education, higher education specifically, have been the ones that that we go to as as the General Assembly to find those dollars. So um, it's, it has the makings of a you know, I hate to be hyperbolic, but potentially a disaster, budgetarily speaking, uh, and not just because of the potential of Medicaid expansion, to be fair, but all of those other things that I mentioned kind of in combination. So is there anything that the Republican leadership, understanding that they are not in favor of expanding Medicaid, that's not a priority for them, is there anything they can do to prepare, given that it's kind of out of y'all's hands, whether you like that or not. No, yes. And I, I understand, you know, it, it, it is largely out of our hands. And and we I think we do need to look down the road and try to prepare as best we can. And I think where that begins 
is practicing some discipline now. And again, the less we spend now, the less we may have to re redirect appropriations in the future to pay for something like Medicaid expansion. The second thing I'll say is that former Speaker of the House, Todd Richardson, is now the director of MoHealthNet, which is Missouri's Medicaid program. Uh, he is looking at different ways to streamline the program already. And it's a good thing because if we do expand the program, we need to we need it to be more efficient, and we may need to find some savings elsewhere in the program to pay for the new population uh, that is now covered in the event that Medicaid should be expanded. We are going to take a break to hear from our sponsor. We'll be back in a few moments. And we're back. I am talking to Representative Cody Smith, who is the head of the House Appropriations Committee in the Missouri General Assembly. Um, Representative Smith, I wanted to move away from the budget for a bit and talk about your interest in criminal justice changes. Uh, some call this criminal justice reform. How did, how did you get interested in this issue? So I think criminal justice reform as a, as a broad policy category is something that is, it's one of those unique areas of policy that both Republicans and Democrats agree that it's time to do something different. Uh, where we've been with harsh mandatory minimum sentencing largely due to the war, you know, as it relates to quote unquote the war on drugs, has led to uh, overpopulated prisons, uh, it's led to uh, long prison stretches which ultimately lead to high rates of recidivism and uh, and higher crime rates ultimately. So it's become, become apparent based on what some other states have done uh, and had success with that if you do a better job uh, at, of redirecting particularly nonviolent criminals uh, away from harsh prison sentencing that they are more likely not to recidivate and ultimately lead to uh, better outcomes. They, they can, you know, hopefully stay employed. Uh, say, say if it, again, this mostly revolves around low-level drug crimes, uh, drug addiction, alcoholism, etc. If they uh, have a series of nonviolent crimes that they could be facing a mandatory minimum prison term for, um, they often would go to prison and then become hardened criminals and recidivate and go back to prison. Um, it's become clear af after some states have changed those mandatory minimum sentencing laws that if you can keep a person in their community, hopefully employed, hopefully as a member of their family unit, help them get rehabilitation, uh, and through probation or parole, um, keep them keep them in intact in their daily life. Oftentimes, they are far less likely to recidivate and kind of straighten up and fly right. So that's kind of the thrust of, uh, behind my involvement in criminal justice reform. Last year, I had a mandatory minimum sentencing bill that essentially did away with mandatory minimum sentencing for nonviolent crimes in Missouri. And it changed over the course of the legislative process and became something that I think is a pretty strong bill. And we actually passed it last year and Governor Parson signed it and it's going into law now and hopefully we'll see some years down the road, the fruits of that uh, pay off, so. So you and I have talked about this before, but you are in favor of a statewide electronic monitoring program that would potentially keep people out of jail uh, prior to them being convicted or at least, I guess, going to trial uh, for a crime. A again, a low-level crime, nonviolent crime. We're, we're talking about petty offenses. Um, can you talk about why you're interested in that? Like, why do you think um, it would be a good idea to have more people 
monitored in some way uh, and and not in jail awaiting whatever uh, court appearance that they might have. Sure. So so this issue uh, came to my attention actually through the budget process. In Missouri, we reimburse county jails for their cost of housing uh, offenders or potential offenders facing state charges. And so um, if, if a person is arrested and faces state charges, they, they can often be held at a county jail while they await trial. And that's led to some budgetary problems on the county levels. And we've had uh, a system for some years where we, we reimburse those counties for the cost of that. And, and over the years, the state has not appropriated as much money as those local officials tell us this is costing them, and there has been an arrearage accumulate. And so uh, you could think of it as a debt, though it's subject to appropriation, so it's, it's truly not. But it is less money than what they're telling us uh, it has cost them. So, so the idea arose, has arisen. Right. A couple of these places include the city of St. Louis and St. Louis County yep. are owed I want to say St. Louis County, it's like a couple million dollars, but I can't quite remember off the top of my head. It is a sore point with them that they feel they they feel like they are owed this money. We could, you know, sure. you, we could debate about whether it should be appropriate or not. But sure, they and in their you know in their defense, they feel like they're uh, they're housing the folks that are awaiting uh, trial for for state charges. And that it's unfair that they're, it's costing them more than the state is reimbursing them. And, and they feel like the state has not lived up to their part of the obligation to alleviate that cost. And, uh, and so there it is, again, an arrears that's accumulated. Obviously, St. Louis City and St. Louis County are the, the largest entities that are, are dealing with this. So they're owed the most money, so to speak. Uh, but the arrearage is in excess of about $40 million, so it's a, a very large number. And so the idea about the statewide electronic monitoring program is to get these folks out of those local jails, put them on a, an electronic monitoring program. Again, that allows them to keep their job, hopefully, allows them to uh, be with their families, hopefully, and continue to be part of their family unit while they await, while they await trial. And through the use of technology, um, can be far less expensive to the locals and thereby the state. So it stems from a budgetary issue, but it, it is kind of within the vein of the criminal justice reform uh, piece that we talked about earlier. So uh, that's where the idea came from, and I believe that, that we could leverage technology in this instance to reduce costs for the state. And uh, we, we appropriated $5 million for that for a statewide program last year. We are, as a state, are currently through the through the uh, midway or partway through the process of, of procuring a a platform to use, and so I'm excited to see how that turns out. I I have high hopes that it will be successful. And I want to be clear because at least in the city of St. Louis, they have an ankle bracelet program that's criticized because the people in the program end up having to pay large fees. Would that be an issue with what you are trying to set up? It wouldn't be an issue. In fact, it would alleviate the need for those, potentially, for those ankle bracelets. Um, and it would alleviate the cost for the locals of, of whatever monitoring platform they're using now. So this would be made available to everyone in the state at no cost to the locals. And uh, if they have some sort of electronic monitoring program now, they could choose to keep that or not. And, and I would hope that they could 
choose to not keep it, to save that money, and to use the state-provided platform, and that it should work just as well as what they are using before. Okay. Well, you're a very busy person, so we're going to wrap up. Um, Jason and I have been asking people to point us to something in their district that folks should visit if they are ever in your area. Do you have anything to recommend? Sure, yeah. In Jasper County, and specifically in Carthage, Carthage is the, the county seat of Jasper County, our courthouse is something that we're very proud of. And, and you'll see I've got some pictures of it here in the office. It's a, it's a grandiose Oh, wow. Building. That uh, is, yeah. Built out of, big. Yeah. Built out of Carthage marble, which is kind of somewhat uh, famous across the state. In fact, the Capitol building has a lot of Carthage marble on it, which is, in fact, limestone that was mined and is, is mined in Carthage. Uh, it's a beautiful building. It reminds me a lot of the state capitol on a much smaller scale, obviously. But uh, they say it's the second most photographed building behind this, the arch in the state of Missouri. I'm not sure that I believe that, but we do like to do like <laughs> to say that from time to time. And so when folks come to town to visit, I, I love to take them to the square. And we have some really cool restaurants, kind of a downtown uh, environment, coffee shop or restaurant or whatever the case may be. So I, I like to take meetings down there. And I would say that's kind of our crown jewel in Jasper County. All right. Well, that's a great suggestion. I'm sure people who have not been to Carthage didn't know that. I didn't. All right. So we're wrapping up. Um, do you have somewhere where people can find you on Twitter or elsewhere on the World Wide Web? Sure. Yeah. On Twitter for uh, it, my Twitter handle is Cody4Mo, the number four Cody, F, uh, number four M-O. Uh, and then Facebook is Cody Smith. I think the, the username is Cody Formo, the same as the Twitter handle. Uh, I'm not as active on social media as some folks are, so it might be a little bit boring, but that's where they could find me. All right. And you can find me at J.S. O'Donohue on Twitter. Uh, thanks. We will see you next week. Mm-hmm.